Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim R. Today we have our host, Rick T. Or I apologize, our guest, Rick T, joining us. Um, he's uh, from Mountain Standard Time there in Utah. How are you doing today? How's everything going for you today, Rick? Doing very well. Thank you for asking. Good day to be sober. Happy to be here. Yes, we were just speaking about it. Super Bowl Sunday. Good day to be sober. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us, I guess, about your childhood and growing up. And Okay, uh, I'd be happy to. Um, first and foremost, I'm happy to be sober. I, I'm at nine, nine years and a little over one month. Uh, Congratulations. At this point, thank you. Um, a little bit about me and, and how uh, my story unfolded. Um, I was uh, a product of a, a single-parent household. Uh, my mom, my real father, had never really been in the picture. Um, I lived with my grandparents and some aunts and uncles. Um, my real father was also an alcoholic addict. And later on in our story, it, it may come up again. He died of uh, hepatitis C back in 85. Um, I was uh, 15 years old at that time. Um, he was an intravenous drug user, um, but little did I know that he, uh, that was part of the reason that uh, he was not around uh, during my, my early childhood years. Um, I was fortunate enough to where my mother had met a gentleman whom I call dad today. And he uh, took me in, my parents, uh, they, I call them my parents, my mom and my, my dad. They married in 77. Um, and then uh, fast forwarding to, I mean, I had a relatively normal childhood. Uh, went to school, participated in sports, had a great circle of friends. Um, it was probably my last couple, last year of junior high and definitely going into high school is when I noticed that my mom uh, was developing uh, her addiction as well. Uh, my mother ultimately passed away from this disease. Um, and again, we can, we can touch, up, touch base on that too. Uh, but it was in high school. Uh, my mom I mean, my, both my parents, my father was very strict. I uh, grew up in a, a, a traditional Catholic home. Um, religion wasn't, wasn't uh, overbearing, but, you know, it was, it was practiced. But my dad was, was very strict with me, uh, very high standards, uh, grades, how I participated in sports. Uh, there was physical discipline. Um, mom, she, she was doing the best that she could, but we, I noticed that during my high school years was when, we noticed that her alcoholism was really taking over. Uh, she t had a tendency to, we, we developed a, what kind of like a, a friendship in high school. Um, I had that cool mom that um, eventually, you know, we were, we were smoking weed together and sometimes we'd get her uh, uh, buzzed enough to where she might go buy us alcohol, you know, during our, during our high school years. And um but it, I mean, that was, that seemed to be fun and cool at the time, but, you know, looking back on that now, that was so, so uh, destructive and, and, and not the proper relationship that a mother and her son should have. Um, I'd like to say that my friendships were good in high school. I mean, I did start to experience um, or experiment, I should say, with alcohol. Um, I'd have to say that my first drink was, my, oh, something I have to say as well is my parents met, my dad was a manager of a private club, so like a nightclub, and my mom was a waitress there, and that's how they met. 
um, I started working in these nightclubs at the age of 12, um, doing miscellaneous chores and duties, cleaning up, cleaning tables and chairs, uh, throwing trash out, things like that. Started working in the kitchen. Were you like topless serious. clubs or what, what kind of clubs? No, like, like nightclubs, like dance clubs. Uh, they okay. had live bands. They had dinner and dancing kind of thing. Gotcha. Um, back then, they called them private clubs only because you had to have a membership in the state of Utah to go to any of these clubs. So if I wanted to go to that club, I had to buy a membership. I wanted to go to that club. I had to buy a membership. That was the thing in Utah. Um, it's not existent anymore, but that's what they were referred to as private clubs. What you're referring to is strip clubs. And no, I didn't work in any of those. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, so I did work in those. And so I was, I was around that environment. Um, and that I think that was crucial to, to include. Um, you know, I, I didn't see it to be an issue. Um, but it was at the age of uh, 13, I remember my, my first experience being under the influence. And that's when, you know, St. Patty's Day, I mean, that's, that's huge. I don't care what state you live in. Um, it's huge to it's a huge day to party. So my dad kept me out of school to help work a golf tournament on that day. Um, and on that, on, during that day is the first day that the cook and the, his assistant were uh, pouring beers into cups for me to drink when we were driving around on the golf cart feeding everybody else their alcohol and that was my first experience drinking um then into high school uh you know we we, we would drink and and ever since the beginning i noticed that i i always drank for the effect um it was never a social thing you know we would put our our beers and beers didn't taste that good when you're you know 14 or 15 years old um so we would you know get them as cold as possible and so we could drink them as fast as possible to get that buzz um, progressing through high school, uh, I did experiment with, uh, with, uh, marijuana, of course. Um, and then when, uh, one of my jobs, I was, I used to clean, uh, clubs as well. And because my dad was managed and owned nightclubs throughout those years, and my mom worked in them as well, we had many connections with people around the Valley. So I was cleaning during non-business hours because I wasn't 21 but I was cleaning two different clubs simultaneously. And it was a good job because uh, it was very flexible hours. It was cash. But um, many times, I mean, I would I'd take beer from the, from the walk-in coolers. I mean, you know what a walk-in looks like. It's a, it's a bedroom full of, of, you know, produce and food. And then you had one that was strictly for beer. Yeah. And um, I would, help myself I'd go shopping and I was the guy I Rick always had the connections but then cleaning um you can imagine you know people getting faded or 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 getting fucked up I guess you could say to point where they lost things and I used to find packages on the floor package what I found out to be cocaine um I had never touched it um at that point never experimented with it I knew a couple of my friends had um so how'd I you find out what it was that I did find out what it was because I gave it to them to test because they had experimented with it. I didn't know what it was. I mean, I assumed, um, but uh, that's when I kind of dabbled with that a little bit. Um, and then, you know, out of high school, um, I mean, 18, 19 years old, we just, uh, we, we partied, um, you know, I experimented with acid and, and, and cocaine and marijuana and, and uh, mushrooms. Um, also, another friend of mine was uh, back then. I didn't realize what it was 
at the time, I mean, we, we called it crank. And I don't know if you're familiar with that term. I don't know how old you are, or, but it was- I've heard that. It was, it was <clears throat> something along the lines of crack. It, it no, it was it was speed. But what my understanding is is that that's kind of like the predecessor to crystal meth, because it was synthetically uh, uh, made. But it was powder form, and when you snorted it, it was it was speed. You know, speed is a term we got. That was from when I was a little kid. You know, I mean, who uses that term anymore? But it was crank. It was something that was cheaper. It was uh, a different buzz than cocaine. Um, easier to get. And uh, we experimented with that. We had somebody that was in our circle that was uh, a distributor of that. Um, we have an area that's east of us that people would, uh, we, we met this group of people it was from a place called Roosevelt, Utah. Um, there's a reservation up there and there's also some natural gas pipelines up there, <clears throat> but absolutely nothing to do for social lives. So people would move down to Salt Lake and Salt Lake was very relatively small, um, still is, but growing. But we um, we met this group of people, and one of the gals there, uh, when she made her connections down here, she was the supplier for everybody back home up in the up in the that area. But that's where I experienced that. Um, then, as soon as uh, as soon as I turned twenty one, I started working, and this is where it gets a little interesting because. What I experienced growing up in my childhood, you know, I mean, I had, I mean, my, my biological father was never around. He passed away when I was 15. Uh, the day that we buried him, um, he, he had his, uh, we had his, his ashes cremated and brought back here to Utah because they didn't even know who he was. He died in Bakersfield, California. They had identified him by his dentures because he had no identification. He was basically uh, um, homeless um, and just wandering. Um but we didn't find out about it until much later. So we brought his ashes back here. I found out I had a sister. I met her for the first and only time that day. Um, and uh, God, I kind of drawn a blank for a second. But um, so growing up and, and experiencing, you know, what I did with my mom, my mom with her alcohol, alcoholism and her use, um, my father being uh, you know, very strict, disciplinary, and there was some physical abuse going on as well. Um, I, I had this feeling, I had this this notion that I wanted to help young people. Um, I didn't want people to experience what I what I did growing up, whether that be uh, the dynamics of the home or wanted to show them there's other ways to deal with that. Uh, definitely not what I was doing, but I started working with young people. I started working with kids at the age of 20 um, in a in local boys and girls club, you couldn't work with the teenage uh, population until you turned 21. So then I turned 21 and I started working in group homes for at-risk youth, um, but living double standards. I mean, here I am wanting to help these kids, but then I'm still partying, you know, and it was my, my messed up mindset was that, you know, I, I never counseled them or talked to them about abstinence of, of alcohol and drugs. I didn't tell glorify it or brag about it, but I never necessarily talked about that because I knew I was still doing that on the weekends or or when I was away from work. Um, but at 21, I, also, I started as a, a bar back in the same club that I worked at in high school, but now I was 21. So I was able to work during, you know, business hours and uh, three, four nights a week, I worked there. I worked there for, and I ended up working there for 10 years. Um, so, you know, uh, if anybody works in that environment, I mean, you don't have to, you don't 
have to partake in everything that goes on uh, as far as the parties and the drinking after hours or, um, you know, because you are working all the time, then you take your, your weekend becomes Sunday, Monday, uh, the, the drugs that fly through those types of establishments. I mean, it's what you can assume it, it happened. Um, but, uh, it was during a relationship that I had with the gal that, uh, there were, you know, many situations to where she made comments that, you know, I'm concerned, you know, your, your mom's an alcoholic and some of your behaviors showing the same. And I just blew it off you know, no, not me, I'm too young kind of thing. I'm, I'm not going to have a, a problem. I mean, I would work every Tuesday. Tuesday night was ladies night. I'd work every Friday and Saturday night because that's the weekends. That's where the money was at. And then during football season, we had Monday night football. So I was working four nights a week. And because I was working four nights a week, I'd go out at least two nights a week. So six nights a week, I was I was drinking or, or drinking to get the effect and also using um, to get the effect. Uh, had made a lot of connections of people in the in the nightclub business that I could get anything I wanted at any time. Um, a lot of times it was given to me because I was the guy that was pouring their drinks. I would serve them first. I would give them the best. I would give them more. Um, I was the guy to go to for the alcohol. And sometimes my tip wasn't, you know, currency. It was something else. And so um, that's, that's, that's what led me into full-fledged, you know, alcoholism. Um, that's also where I met my wife. <clears throat> um, she had come in for, she'd been coming into the club for many years or for a couple years on a fake ID. And that little did I know that when she came in on her birthday, this one particular night, that that was her 21st birthday. Um, and I was 23 at the time. And uh, we had met and we established a relationship. Um, I found out that she was, she was honest with me after a couple of months. Um, she hit it well, but she was pregnant and not by me. This was before a relationship right before me, but he denied all responsibility. I was interested enough with this, with her, that I appreciated her honesty and just wanted to move forward with the relationship. Well, I've been blessed. And that's a young lady that I call my daughter today. Um, I raised her as my own and um, uh, she's 28 now and a nurse and married and doing wonderfully. Wow. Yeah, it's it's great. Um, I gave her my name um, from the very beginning. This this gentleman didn't this person. I say gentleman because you know he's. It, it's weird how years and years of time pass and how events have unfolded. Is that um, he's kind of come back into the picture and all along I knew who he was. I knew who this guy was. <laughs> but uh, so going back to that relationship, um, so we started a life together and. Me still working with young people. Um, she also comes from a background where the person that she was dating before me, long term, they had broken up. She dated a couple of guys briefly, but that person that she was with long term, he was a dealer. And um, so she had been exposed to that lifestyle as well. Um, a dealer of uh, cocaine was, was his thing. Um, so her and I had more than... Uh, you know, interests in each other's looks and, and, and other positive ambitions, but we also both like to party. Um, we ended up uh, getting married and uh, having another child together, and we uh, bought a home. Unfortunately, her mother had passed and left the home to the kids. We bought the, the siblings out, so we had that same home. 
um, that was a blessing and a curse at the same time because um, that turned into a party house. I mean, while I was out working in the club, she was entertaining friends and family um, on the weekends as well. So um, I knew what I was missing when I was working. And so when I'd come home or I'd miss work to come home to party with them, um, just led to a lot of, you know, uh, dysfunction. Um, we met another circle of friends that uh, also there was a gal that was a, a cocaine dealer as well and uh, befriended her. And I had another friend from a different circle. So it was always around. Um, so I'd say that I was doing that almost every weekend for, I can't count how many years, you know, um, Crown Royal and cocaine. That was a beautiful marriage for me at that time. And I can joke about it now, but, uh, you know, I can see how destructive that was back then. Um, and then again, here I am still working with adolescents, working my way up into a, a position with a um, very difficult to get position, uh, paid well for that period of time, great benefits, um, worked, worked me four 10 hour shifts so I could work three hours at the club and have one day off to focus on family. But over time, that one day off basically was the day for my wife, my wife and I to play. You know, and what I mean by play is we we partied together, um, yeah. get a babys babysitter and whatnot. Um, after ultimately my my alcohol, my drinking, um, and and partying, she she partied just as much, but uh, I partied, I drank to the point where I would pass out, black out, things like that. Um, it ultimately ruined our marriage. Um, divorce came in 2002 and uh i mean i was floored you know i mean here i am i was in my 20s working for the the organization that i was that was a hard to get job i was making good money i was working a side job that paid me very well we had a house and three or four cars and we traveled and we take we go camping i mean we it looked like we were doing really well um but we we pissed off, uh, you know, a large savings account, because um, we were very irresponsible, um, you know, drugs and alcohol took over um, any and all responsibility that we, we had. Um, 2002, uh, I woke up and she had moved out. And I, I kind of felt that might be coming just because we were getting behind in mortgage payments. And I thought that we were going to do that together. But she got her own place. Um, and all within that year, 2002, we separated. Um, she started seeing someone else mid-year. Uh, we divorced. She was pregnant. She got married all in that same year. So she went to her next relationship. 2002, I had that feeling, this feeling of hopelessness and help, helplessness. Um, family came in. My mom came and, and said, you should come back and stay with us. We're concerned for you. And so I did, and that was an, uh, great that my family um, was looking out for me and was supportive of me, but I can't believe that they took me underneath the roof underneath the roof, and back into the home because it was like also enabling me. Um, but I was devastated. <clears throat> you know, I had a house full of my, ch uh, my children's stuff. I had my wife, my two kids, beautiful home, completely furnished into I had to move everything that was left that she didn't take upstairs and make this apartment upstairs and the basement was empty. Um, very depressing. Uh, but uh, 
I found another job. I had gotten let go from that great job that I had, you know, earned my way into. And it's very difficult to be to be let go from a, that that particular organization. Um, you have to kind of you have to fuck up pretty good, and I did. Um, and there was they gave me warnings, and ultimately I got let go. I found another job working with adolescents. Um, uh, started working that one. Something I need to touch base on too is during one of my wife's, her and I, we 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 would argue a lot. Um, you know, never put our hands on each other. Um, but there was one, in, there was one instance that took place to where we were screaming and yelling so loud at each other in the garage that, and the garage door was open that a neighbor across the street had, could hear us. I, I was loud and, 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 you know, aggressive. And she yelled for that neighbor. Um, it, cops got called. And I got a domestic disturbance. And so that was my uh, a charge that I got along with my first DUI. I got in 1999 as well. I totaled one of my one of my vehicles. Um, both of those got a plea in abeyance upon, you know, uh, not not drinking. I don't know how I was able to do that, but I, I didn't drink forever long. They asked me to. It was a very short period of time and um, comply with uh, expectations of the court. So I got those uh, reduced or or, or uh, removed from my record uh, for a plea in abeyance is what they call it. But that was my first experience with the law <clears throat> in that way as an adult. Um, you know, I escaped all those situations, all those years that I was carrying drugs and alcohol. And, and um, because I had friends that were dealers, I was able to hook people up and I'd have large quantities on me. And if I sold this guy that, then all my stuff would be free you know, what I would use them um, for my own, my own stash. But um, I, I bring up that dabbling with the law because that's going to come up a little bit later as well. Um, 2002, you know, I started working with this one organization with kids as well. Um, I met a group of guys that were also ironically um, either getting divorced or recently divorced. So there's like five of us. So like every single weekend we would go out. Um, with my wife meeting this new gentleman, they got married, of course, as I mentioned. Um, but because of my drinking and because of the bitterness from the relationship, seeing my kids on a regular basis, um, it wasn't really happening. Um, I, uh, I It got to the point to where in 2004, um, because I was drinking every day. I mean, I literally was drinking every day. I would wake up. And my breakfast was a couple pulls from the bottle. Um, and, and then I figured if, well, if I just do that in the morning and stop, um, then I should be good to go when I show up for work. And then like a dumbass, I mean, these young kids, they were coming from homes where they had alcoholic parents. They were coming from homes where they were abused or neglected. Um, I, I was fooling myself if I didn't think for once that they wouldn't smell that on my breath even you know even if it had been at eight or eight or nine in the morning by three or four in the afternoon when you're drinking every day like that that shit's coming out your pores I mean it's just in you um so my work and, and meanwhile on the weekend still doing the the heavy drugs as well um but my work uh, stepped in one of the administrators was um, in recovery. He identified the signs. Um, he saw what kind of what was going on. He met with me on the side. They offered to do an intervention. 
um, and asked me if I'd be willing to go to treatment. And I said, yes, I would. Um, I wanted to keep my job. I knew I wasn't heading down a, a good road. Um, so I said, yes. So I went through treatment. It was an outpatient treatment program, but it was your 30-day program, Monday through Friday. Um, got involved in meetings with our local AA groups, um, started working the steps. And part of the program as you work through step four um, within that 30 days time. Um, everybody in my life was happy and supportive. And um, I stayed sober. Uh, that was in October of 2004. And I stayed sober until March of the following year. Um, during 2000, uh, 2004, also at that time, my ex-wife had informed me that her new husband got a transfer opportunity with his, with his company. And they were moving to the East Coast. They were moving to North Carolina. My kids were eight and four at that time. And that just floored me. And I can't believe that I stayed sober during that announcement. We had Thanksgiving, we had Christmas, and they moved the day after Christmas. They packed up and went to North Carolina. And um, I, that just was, I mean, if, if anyone is a parent, you know, and especially struggling with, with addiction and alcoholism and this bitterness of a, a divorce that just ripped my heart out. <clears throat> um, maintain daily contact with my kids. And then in March, I had made arrangements to go out and see them in North Carolina. And I was still sober. Um, first time making uh, plans to travel like that on my own and doing it sober. So riding that high, that, that feeling of accomplishment, that confidence. Um, and we all know what that does to well, what, what that can do for someone that's in recovery, especially I was only what, what is that? Five months, um, barely over five months sober. Well, I had a little money in the bank. I had, I was working another side job as well at a retail store. So I was working two jobs. Um, I had a car and uh, because I had nothing when, when I got divorced, I mean, we had literally had nothing. Um, but I had a car, I had a, a some savings. I had planned this trip with my kids and I flew out of here and I ended up in, in Dallas uh, for a, a layover to get on my second flight. Um, and I don't know what came over me, but it was, I'm going to have a cocktail. I'm, I'm going to reward myself, you know, for look what I've accomplished, look what I've done so far. And um, so I did, I, and I had a cocktail and I had another, um, made it to North Carolina. Um, went out and grabbed my kids, uh, stayed in, in, in their town, uh, which is right outside of Raleigh. Um, had a wonderful time. Um, I was sober when I was there with my kids. Um, I had to go back to Raleigh uh, and spend the night there because the next morning my flight left. But that after having that time with my kids and leaving them there, that was very hard. Got back to Raleigh and um, I hit the clubs. And I... I just went on a, I mean, want to call it a bender. I don't know, but I, I got fucked up. And um, immediately upon coming back to Salt Lake, it was, that was it. Reconnected with the gal that was my supplier from before. Um, I was able to get an opportunity to move into this house, this big, enormous, beautiful house and share rent, rent with someone that I met in my treatment program. She was still sober. Um, her addiction was meth. Um, she was 
sober from all substances and, and alcohol. And I thought that might be a good opportunity for me to move in, but I was drinking and using while in my portion of the home. Um, but that summer was, was probably one of the worst summers that I'd ever had only because my kids were still in North Carolina. I had reconnected with people that I was buying from before and I was using every, my, I had weekends off. And so every Friday at uh, three o'clock, I would show up to um, my friend's place of work and she worked in a, a golf course restaurant and I would drink for free. I would buy my package from her, my, my Coke, and uh, I would party from Friday till Sunday and then go back to work on Monday and then get off on Friday. And that was a repetitive cycle. Um, we ended up... Uh, Later on that summer, dispute over money. Um, we we severed ties with one another. But also during that summer, I'm embarrassed to say, but I was shit. I was 35 at the time. But at you, when you're drinking and using at the same time, um, and I know many many people can relate to this. If you're drinking only, you get fucked up. You pass out. You you drive drunk. You you know um, people black out. Um, when you're using only, and I've never done that because I never just used a substance alone. It always was with drinking, but you kind of, you get that feeling that you like to ride where I was drinking and using at the same time. Well, I didn't have any connections anymore for, you know, cocaine or substance, but I was still drinking the same quantity as I was when I was using, but obviously getting more intoxicated because that wasn't keeping things balanced for me. But anyway, um, did my first beer run at the age of 35 and got caught. Um, and also was on driving on a, on a uh, expired license and no insurance. And uh, so there's, I picked up four or five charges in the same night. And I can't believe he didn't give me a DUI. That cop actually drove me home. I, it was nuts. I should have been. Uh -huh. Yeah, I sh I, he did. We did a blood alcohol, but I passed the field sobriety test. But then when they had me blow, they looked at me in amazement because I shouldn't have been standing. I should have been in the hospital. My BAC was so high. Um, it was, I can't remember what it was. It was it was ungodly high. I shouldn't have been alive, you know, really. Um, they, they shit their pants and he was just like, man, I'm going to get you home. You live close. And I'm like, actually, I live down the street. So he took me home. Um but shit, that didn't do anything for me. Um, I continued to get in trouble with the law. Stupid shit that, I mean, I wasn't out breaking into cars and beating people up, but God, it exposed me. I, you know, I was, I was during the other period of time, I was hanging out with people that, I mean, the guys, some of them were, were gangbangers from the past, but my age now. So they we were grown up, but um, still in their criminal activities. And I mean, I shouldn't have been hanging out with them. I shouldn't have been hanging out with the people that I was, but I did. Um, and now I have a criminal record and uh, that, that developed to just, I mean, my, my, my record, when I get it from our, our local bureau um, of criminal investigations or backgrounds, my record looks like this, but um, a lot of them were just not showing up for court, you know, um, not, not complying with the orders of the court, not showing up to see your probation officer, things like that. Um, fast forward to 2008, 
I was able to land a, another good job in 2007, I landed another good job, um, did well for that for about a year and a half. And then uh, they caught on to my drinking as well. I used to operate heavy equipment because um, I wasn't able to get a job working with kids anymore. I ultimately got let go from that one. Um, you know, I, I have not shared my story all the way from the beginning. So if I'm rambling, you know, forgive no, me. No, not at all. No, you, you're great. <laughs> Keep going. But uh, so I'd lost that job um, drinking. They had me do a, I, my BAC, BAC shot through the roof. But I was drinking on the job during there, um, during that period of time. I was. I had a on the back of my forklift in my backpack. You know, I'd always take a pint with me to work. Really? And when things slowed down, you know, we'd, we'd sip a little bit. We worked the night shifts when all the uh, management had gone away. Well, that was during a, the right before the the, re the recession. Um, and I worked for a lumber supply company. Um, and so we we switched our shifts. So now we're all working during the day. So now everybody's eyes was on everybody. And they kind of picked up on Rick's acting different, Rick's being different. Um, and when I walked in, they could smell. And they, they ran me up to this uh, diagnostic center where they, they contracted to do drug tests, alcohol tests. And my BAC level, again, I was functioning and walking and talking what I thought was normal, but was through the roof. Uh, they let me go. Um, was able to get another job with another company, again, operating heavy equipment. Um, How were you able to get that new job? Did they know about what just happened? Apparently not. And I wasn't, I told them it was a reduction of force, I'm sure, which was true at the time. They were laying off, they were laying people off. Um, but I was a lead there. And uh, I mean, again, aside from all of this, I mean, I, I had the uncanny ability to, you know, my personality, I was able to bullshit well with people. I was a good guy. I just was a fucking alcoholic and, and an addict, you know, <clears throat> and I had a lead role. Um, it, but they did, they let me go. And I, I went to the next one and I told them it was a reduction of force, which was happening, was not uncommon at that point in time. And it was a, a smaller lumber supply company. Now I went to one that used to supply them and they supplied all of the Western U.S. And I was able to get a job with them. But then I had this, this something that had never happened to me before. And I had a, um, a, a petty mall seizure while operating my forklift um it well, was you were, were, were you intoxicated when this happened no no i was not and it was the craziest thing and, and also we all know that you know when people um quit drinking uh they experience you know dts they experience um nausea they experience um seizures things like that i had no history of seizures it wasn't a full-on um grand mal seizure but it was like time stopped um, I have two, I had two hours of time that I was unaccounted for and thank God, thank God I did not hurt somebody or myself. And we were working the night. So there's no, there's no customers in the yard. There were no, um, nobody walking, but other people operating forklifts in the area. You imagine this enormous lumber yard that covers acres and acres of, of property. But finally, one of the leads found me and he's like, Rick. And I really wasn't responding or replying. And I'm just sitting there. And um, he, he got me to get off my forklift and then walked me back to the office. 
um, they ended up calling the EMTs and, and they came, but, and I was, I had bitten my tongue and I was bleeding down the, down the sides of my mouth. And they were like, you're done. We can't have you not. They didn't let me go. They said, you need to go see a doctor and find out what's going on. Well, my doctor that I went and saw, of course, my work wouldn't let me come back until my doctor signed for me, signed off. And they did a gamut of tests. He also was in recovery and I didn't know it at the time. But after uh, about a month of meeting with him, it came out. Um, but uh, lo and behold, how did I find this guy? So he said, there's no way that I'm going to let you go back and operate heavy machinery or, or sign off for you to return to work full duty until you give me four weeks of clean UAs. And he did the kind of UA where they can test alcohol going back even four or five days. Um, there's a specific term for it and I can't remember it. So, you know, I mean, we all know that as alcoholics and addicts, we know, well, I can, if I use on this day, I know I'm going to be clean on this day. Or if I smoke weed on this day, I know I can give a, a clean UA on this day and kind of time it out or ways to flush your system. But this one with alcohol, God, I wish, and my other treatment center would use the same method of tests. If I drink on a Monday, they could detect it on a Friday. So I had to submit. I mean, just for UAs. people and for people who don't know, we're talking about P tests. The UAs yes, are, P yeah, because I'm, I was just thinking in my head, some people, I would say my friend the other day saying how it's funny how it's acts. We have our own terminology. We know legal jargon. We know rehab jargon. We know all the types of things that may not, people may not know what we're, like we say UA and I know what you're talking about, but to the regular listener may not know. That's a key test. Yeah, you're an analysis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's different ways to test. I mean, we all, well, you, we should know is that they can test your, they can do a breathalyzer, that you can do a urine test, they can give a blood test. And that's to hair test. Yep blood tests they can do hair tests exactly um, most commonly used is is urine unless they 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 feel that urine produced a negative test result but they're 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 convinced you are under the influence of something so they'll order a blood or a hair um but anyway so my doctor would require drug tests or uas on a random basis but i had to do them weekly and there's no way that i could have drank and got away with it so i i got sober um, I did go to some meetings at that during that period of time. Um, I was able to return to work, but on light duty, but they're paying me the same wage. They're paying me operating equipment, but they wouldn't let me get back on equipment at, at the time. So I stayed sober and they ended up, um, and they found, they found a way to let me go. Um, they saw me cleaning out in the, the front area, which happened to be the smoking section. And I was smoking while working out in the front of the property, but they were looking for a reason to let me go. And I was probably just a pain in the ass to them. And I can see that. So they let me go. Um, so I had had at this point, uh, gone to treatment, stayed sober for five months, relapsed, got sober for my doctor. So a medical, so a work intervention, a medical in intervention. Um, and I relapsed again. And this was in 2008 or nine. So now I kind of got myself in the position to where I had no car. I had no license. Um, I had an injury when I was a little boy to my eye. That's left me legally blind. Um, and you have to answer, back then you had to answer questions in a certain way. And I had surgeries on my eye, but I didn't wear glasses, but I had impaired vision. So 
I didn't update my license. And so then I had to go and update it with the DMV and I never did. And my license expired. So I had no current driver's license and I had no car. I had a criminal record. I was an alcoholic um, living in what I thought was just severe depression and uh, saw no way out. I just felt helpless. I was unemployable. I could, couldn't see my kids um, as often as I wanted to, but that, that was all on me. I mean, my wife was difficult. My ex-wife was difficult to work with, but that was all on me. I mean, I was the one that was making things even more difficult by a couple of, and I'll say a couple, it wasn't often, and I'm being honest, but there were times that I would show up late to pick them up, but I was taking the bus, but I would also miss that bus because I was probably hung over from the day before. A couple of times I'd show up and I was still under the influence from the night before. I wouldn't let my, my, my ex-spouse pick up my kids either you know, if they were showing up like that or showing up late. So I only have myself to blame for that. Um, continue on 2009, 10 and 11. Um, I continued to get involved. I, I picked up additional charges, uh, drinking. Um, I was so unemployable that I ended up going down to a day, a day labor place. And I know they have them across the country or they just have guys like me. Um, you could you could have guys that were maybe out of jail or prison or traveling through, passing through, didn't have a place to stay, but you go in and put in a day's work labor, um, usually cleaning somewhere, doing the grunt work at a construction site, um, and they pay you that same day. And they pay you minimum, minimum wage. Um, but mind you, uh, the reason that I felt helpless and hopeless as well is not only because of my alcoholism, but child support was still coming out of anything that I made. And um, when you're making, you know, at 40 years old and you're making 725 an hour and you're only able to work four to six hours a day, you know, after taxes, you're taking home 15 bucks a day. And um, this is in 2010 and 11. Um, and I was living with family and they, they let me, you know, eat there, but $15 a day, what the, what the hell can you do with that? Well, what it did is it buy me a pack of smokes and a bottle, and that's what it did, and I did that for probably two years, um, and then in and out of jail, too, for not taking care of my, my obligations to the court, you know, I couldn't comply um, or didn't want to show up to court because I've of uh, I was either drunk or if I, they might order a, a, another UA and I, I shouldn't have been drinking as a, one of the conditions of being on probation. Um, so here I go from this guy that's working in youth corrections and the, these great roles that I got all the while bullshitting people living double life. Um, now I'm 40 years old and, and can't get a job, can't get a car, don't have any credit. Um, working for 15 bucks a day just to keep a bottle in my hand. Didn't have any money for drugs. I didn't and plus, I knew the, the probation didn't, um, I, I wasn't going to show up with a dirty UA for, for like anything, any substance. Alcohol, I didn't know what they were doing for that. But um, that's what it was doing was, was you know, uh, 15 bucks a day was letting me buy, buy a bottle and buy a pack of smokes. Did that for a couple of years. Spent a total, a total, I added it up one time, of uh, 18 months um, in jail, in our county jail. Um, longest period of time was about six months, 
but I'd gone back so many times for, you know, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. It added up to about 18 months, so a year and a half. Um, finally, went in late 2011, right before Thanksgiving. And I missed my first Thanksgiving and my first Christmas being away from my kids because um, they only stayed in North Carolina for about a year. That didn't work out for them, so they'd come back here. And that was back in that that time frame that I'm speaking on. Um, so in that that last time in jail, um, you know, and I always hear about guys coming out of jail and all focused and positive. Oh, I'm going to do well. I'm going to stay clean. I'm going to stay sober. I'm going to do yeah. everything I got I got to do. And they get back out and they just more often than not, my experience, I saw them just going back on the same, same bullshit, same lifestyle. Yeah, the rate of recidivism um, is very high. No matter no matter how high the hope, the, the rate of recidivism is very high. It is, it is very high. And you're in more often than not, they're just staying sober for the, the terms of probation or to satisfy the judge judge's requirements, you know, um, and just long enough to to do that. Well. I worked in the, so in jail, in our county jail, they have a two-man cell and they have an eight-man cell. And an eight-man cell is, is usually reserved for those that want to work in the kitchen. Working in the kitchen gives you a lot of different um, perks or bonuses for when you eat better. Um, it helps time go by faster because you're working 12-hour shifts. You're working in the kitchen and you're feeding thousands of other inmates. Um, and uh, being in an eight-man cell, I mean, you got to imagine the cells aren't that big, but that particular time and me missing the holidays and me being in that position, you know, I, I knew, I knew shit had to change. And I, I wasn't the kind of guy that would get caught up in the, the glorifying of your, your criminal activities, the glorifying and drinking and using. Um, I never fed into that bullshit, but there was this one guy that was about my age that used to get his hands on a lot of community resources and community resources. What I mean is treatment, um, job opportunities, um, how other resources to help people with financial situations. Like maybe it was for food stamps. Maybe it was for job opportunities. Maybe it was for clothing, um, temporary shelter, uh, things like that. Um, and I kind of gravitated towards this guy. So I got a lot of that information from him. Um, I read a lot when I was in there as well. Um, you know, made good use of my time <laughs> as well as you can. And I remember that day being released from jail. Um, I got I called up our, it's got a, an acronym. And it was, um, I want to say it was ORC. But what that means for anyone out there is, it's an organization to where you can go and you can have an assessment done free of charge. It's county funded. Again, I had no job. I had no insurance. I, I couldn't go to treatment. I knew I needed treatment. So I was going to have to go about it the long and more difficult way. And that was getting on a waiting list. I put myself on a waiting list after I went and had this assessment done. Put myself on this waiting list. It was a one year waiting list. Just to what, get led to this, what led to you wanting to get this assessment done? Because I knew something had to change, um, I knew I needed treatment. And in order to in order to be accepted in, or be put on a waiting list, you had to go have this assessment. Was there something that there's usually something like it happens that makes us realize, okay, like I need treatment. Was there a reason? Was there an incident that happened? Uh, well, not not one particular. Well, man, I was 
I mean, shit, I was... Uh, but what was it, put it this way, what was the straw that broke the camel's back? Well, because I kept drinking for that entire year. But what was the straw that broke the camel's back was, I was 41 years old. Um, I, I, I failed a medical or a work intervent, employment intervention. I, I failed to stay sober for a medical intervention. I needed help. I had missed holidays for the first time. I was 41. I had been in jail for the equivalent of 18 months. Um, my health wasn't the best. I knew I needed help. And by me talking with these other gentlemen in my cell, I mean, I'm not gonna say it was just those conversations. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Every time that I hit rock bottom, I felt it can't get any worse than this until I went back out and I started drinking and I started using again. And my rock bottom was even lower than before. There were times where I spent, I, I had times to reminisce where, I mean, I had never been, had so much involvement with the, with, the, with the law enforcement that I did in that time from 2005 to 2011. And 18 months in jail, the city that I lived in, they knew me by, just by face and by name. They didn't have to ask for my ID, you know? Um, there were up until that time, there was a time where my dad had to take me to the hospital. Um, I had done some work for a friend where he paid me cash under the table. His wife dropped me down to our local transit. I made it back home. I had told her prior to that, how, how much difficulty I had sleeping, which I did, but because I wasn't really sleeping, man, I was, I was drinking to the point where I was passing out and you don't pass out for a long time. In my experience, I'd wake up and I'd drink again. Well, she gave me an ambient like a dumbass. I took it and I drank on it. Well, I ended up falling that night to where the point and I cut myself and had to go to the hospital. My dad at two in the morning, taking his 40 year old son to the hospital to get stitches because I was so drunk and out of it. Um, um, I spent a weekend in a local park because I was so fucked up and I was so embarrassed to call anybody. My cell phone died anyway. I didn't eat for two days. I was drinking from the, the water fountain that was there just to keep some water in me. But I was so, that's one thing that I just share with my sponsor too, is that with the, with the alcoholism, um, it affects people in different ways or sometimes you can't even predict how it's going to affect you. I was, I'm, I'm five, seven and on a, and right now I'm a very healthy 177 pounds. Back then I was weighing 145 pounds. And I was drinking a fifth a day of liquor. And there were times where I'd wake well, every morning I'd wake up and I'd take a couple of pulls off that bottle. And it's just like, it's just like you and I having coffee today. It was normal. And I'd go about my day. But then there were times where I'd take a couple of pulls off that bottle and I would pass out within 20 minutes. It was just that, that chemical imbalance and what it did to me. I could never predict how it was going to affect me. And that weekend that I spent in the park, I didn't want to be there, but I was so embarrassed and so fucked up that I, I didn't know how to reach out to anybody. And then I did, had no way to reach out, my, reach out, my phone had died. And it was me thinking of all those times and thinking of all the things that I, I had lost and the relationships that I had damaged. My health wasn't, it wasn't good. My relationships were, were um, suffering or non-existent. I had lost all trust. I had lost all hope. Um, I just felt like that rock bottom, that was it for me. And, you know, I mean, everyone has their stories of, 
you know, I, I lost a house, I lost a job, I lost a wife, I lost a car, you know, um, all of that. And yeah, that happened. It did. But it, it got to the point literally where I, I knew I had fewer days ahead of me than I did behind me, especially if I was going to continue down this road. Um, my body wasn't going to hold up anymore. Um, when I put myself on that waiting list, do you think that that, that, that year I would focus on, on making some changes? No, I, I kind of took 2012 as a last hurrah because I knew I, eventually I was going to get accepted on that list, that waiting list, and I was going to go into treatment. And so I drank and I partied and I don't remember if I used or not. Honestly, I don't because I mean, I, 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 I drank heavier than, than I ever had. Um, you know, sometimes to the point to where I would drink and I couldn't even keep it down, but then I would keep it down, meaning I would physically get sick because I was just forcing it into my body. Yeah. Um, but then I would make it, make make a way for it to happen to where I could drink and keep it down. Um, and I, I, I wasn't eating and I, I just, I could see myself and feel myself withering away, honestly. Um, the, the treatment center contacted me. They said, we have an opening. Um, I was able to get my phone turned back on and keep it on just by working these, I'd, I'd work some other side jobs and with other temp agencies as well. Um, so I was able to keep my phone on, um, able to, on weekends to keep it together long enough to see my kids. And, and that's something that was very difficult. We talk about that to this day, you know, um, what I've done to them and where the, the path that my ex-wife took, because she, she, she went up, ended up going and she just got let out of her third treatment center, um, 10 days ago, um, and I know this because we don't communicate, but I know this because my daughters find out through other family members and friends that um, she ended up going to treatment again. But I knew my kids didn't have anybody. And I knew that that, you know, again, I, I put them through enough. Um, and this was in uh, 2012, like I had said. Finally, that treatment center contacted me, um, said they had an opening, but I had to go through a 72-hour detox at our local VOA, and that's veteran. Um, Volunteers of America, um, and I know that's nationwide as well, but they have, it has different roles or different functions in, in states. Um, but it has, uh, we have a treatment center here that's funded by the BOA and it's um, county funds. And that's the waiting list that I was on, but I had to do a 72 hour detox at BOA. It's a, it's a center where you walk in, they search your belongings, they feed you and they get you healthy. They monitor you medically by nursing staff, make sure you're not going to uh, put yourself at risk. Um, and I chickened out. And this is what I've been waiting for, you know, for almost a whole year. And I'm like, oh, shit, it's right here. And I chickened out. Gave him some bullshit story that I had an opportunity to work out of state and I, or out of, the, out of the city. And I had to go make the What, make what was the feeling? What was the feeling? Fear? Yes, it was definitely fear. It was fear. Like, oh, shit, this is it. Here we go. You know? Um, you're like know, without drugs or alcohol scare the yeah, shit out of you that much yeah i did at that time i did i didn't know if i could do it even though this is what i was waiting for um then another three to four weeks another i think it was on the three weeks past and i made it through the holidays and um i reached out to them and i said okay uh this is it i'm ready 
Um, and I don't know what came over me at that point in time, but I, I, I threw in the towel. As they say, I surrendered because I knew I knew I couldn't do it. And I knew I couldn't do it alone. Um, we're entering 2013 now. You know, I mean, fuck, I'm going to be 43 that year. And uh, the damage, I mean, I've been doing this since I was in high school. And, you know, I mean, I, I've been talking for one hour almost, and I didn't even give you all the ins and outs of the situation <laughs> I put myself into. You yeah, know, multiple gave, episodes. Gave you the overview. Um, but uh, so they, they accepted me again. I went to the VOA. I, I got my 72 hours, and I started treatment. January 8th, 2013. And I, it's so crazy how this works because also on that day, and I hadn't told anybody again that um, I was going to be entering treatment. Um, I wanted to wait until I actually started. But on January, actually it was January 6th. I'm sorry, January 6th, my oldest daughter called me up crying. Um, and she was 19 at that time. And uh, called me up crying and she was humiliated. She didn't want to tell me, but I was able to get it out of her. But she called to tell me she was pregnant, um, which would have been my, well, it would have been, which turned out to be my first grandchild. And lo and behold, I was um, scheduled to report for treatment on January 8th. And, um, and see, I'm kind of getting those days mixed up because my sobriety date is January 8th, 2013. So that, those few days where I'm getting mixed up, but that was my sobriety date. And then that's when I started treatment. And it was a outpatient treatment center that was four days a week for several hours every day. And again, it was county funded. Um, that's what was available to me at the time. Um, and it was supposed to be a three to five month program and it's not a step program. They did not follow the, the 12 steps and 12 traditions. Um, but it was definitely a recovery program. It's supposed to be three to five months. And I kind of manipulated that in my favor to where I made that into like a nine or 10 month program for me. I wasn't fearful of leaving the treatment. I was grateful for the opportunity that it was given me. I was grateful for what I was getting out of it. I also got myself into a position to where um, I was trusted and respected as far as my the um, what I was contributing to the group. It wasn't well. There was men and women there, um, but at times it was mostly men or only men. It was rare that you saw a female come through, but nonetheless, as I, I stretched that program out to be almost nine to ten months, and I can't tell you what the feeling that came over me and the growth that I experienced and the sense of accomplishment that I experienced in just that first year um, and also being in, the, in that program. Um, all things that we all look for when we're drinking and using and we know that what changes need to happen, things kind of fell into place. I mean, Everybody in my life, when they saw that I was sober again, started to come back around, started to call, started to message, started to want to be around me. They saw the difference in my face. They saw the difference in my physical appearance. They could hear it in my voice. You know, the difference. This is this is the old Rick, the good Rick. 
but even better now because I'm 100%, I am completely sober. Um, but still being on probation without a license, without a car, still feeling unemployable, right? But I was able to land a job um, in January of that year. And there were times, I mean, I had to, you know, I mean, shit, I'd have to walk, walk 45 minutes. And we, you know, we, we, we tease people about that are in recovery or even actively using those fuckers on the mountain bikes, you know, they're everywhere because that's their form of transportation. But um, I had one in the middle of winter in Utah, that shit's cold, you know, um, but I, I got that job and I, I kept that job and actually uh, kept that job till COVID hit because it was with one of our professional sports teams here in Utah. Um, and I loved the job. Then I ended up getting another job. And uh, I was going through our local um, uh, workforce services and trying to find you know, employment. I had gotten through, I was working with the um, uh, what, book rehab, uh, made a lot of connections that way. Um, and then I ended up getting this job that I was, I looked over multiple times because I didn't want to, I didn't want to go answer phones. I didn't, I was 40, 43 years old. I didn't want a job like that. I was, my pride was getting the best of me. And finally, I just said, fuck it. I, I need a, I need a job and I need benefits. I need some insurance. Um, so I took the job and it ended up being a blessing because, you know, the overtime that was made available to me. It, the schedule that they gave me, it allowed me to keep my side job. I was able to, I got terminated from probation. Um, I got my license back all that same year. And my oldest daughter, God bless her, um, because her shit, she, she graduated from high school at uh, 17 or eight, 17 years old um, with half of her associate's degree already under her belt. Um, went right into college immediately after graduating, but her credit was good. She gave me a car because she went out and financed her first car. So she gave her 43 year old dad in recovery, um, a car. So now I had, I was off probation. I got my license back. I was able to get and keep two jobs. I got a car for the first time since 2005 um so in eight years um and that first year um getting sober was probably one of the best years i mean they just keep getting better but it was probably one of the best years of my life um because i did i made I, what I, you can't when people think about getting sober and when they're terrified about it um you can't do it for anybody you can't do it for a, a, a partner, whether it's boyfriend, girlfriend, or spouse. You can't do it for your kids. You can't do it for your probation officer or your judge or your employer, as you saw, or your doctor. You know, I mean, you can, but what's the likelihood that you're going to remain sober if you're doing it for all the wrong reasons? If you're doing it for other people, you have to do it for yourself. Um, and, and as we say, and as we say in the 12 steps, you know, I surrendered. I did. I finally made that realization. And like I said, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I, I had lost so much, so many times, many times over. Um, I've been to jail more times than I wanted to. And that didn't keep me clean. That didn't keep me sober. That didn't keep me from picking up stupid charges. 
Um, I finally, I finally gave in. I finally gave up. I was powerless over alcohol. I was waking up and drinking. Um, I was, I was putting off eating because if I ate, then I wouldn't get the effect that I was looking to get by drinking, you know, and I was numbing myself out. And we talk about why do we drink? Why do we use? Um, we do it when we're, when we want to celebrate, we want to do it when we're happy. We want to do it when we're sad or depressed. We want to do it when we're feeling lonely. We want to do it when we're feeling angry. We wanted all of these emotions are reasons that we drink and that we use. Um, but ultimately we have a problem. We have an issue with dealing with life on life's terms, dealing with emotions, dealing with experiences, um, dealing with situations, you know, did I have fun when I used to drink? Absolutely. I remember those days when it was fun and it was social and I had some great times and some great memories. Um, when I was able to do it responsibly, you know, but I knew looking back now, um, I was never a normal drinker or user. I mean, I did it for the effect, you know, and when, if some was good, more is always better. You know, I couldn't have just two or three drinks. I couldn't do smoke just one joint. I couldn't do just two or three lines. You know, it had to be an eight ball. Um, you know, it had to be that whole eight to weed. Um, it couldn't just be a pint. It had to be a fifth or it had to be a 12 pack and a pint or then it turned into just a fifth every day. Um, fifths of cheap vodka is a lot. It's a lot cheaper than a 12 pack of beer, even a decent beer, you know. Um, and that's, that's what I had gotten myself to the situation I put myself in, but what sobriety has brought me is unsurmountable. I mean, it's, it's beautiful is what it's brought me. And, and I do, I mean, I don't want to warn anyone or, or give them a, a, a false hope, but not picking up once you've made that decision and once you throw in that towel and you surrender, not picking up for me was relatively easy because you tell yourself i'm not going to drink today or there are some of those people that say ah when people say oh you don't drink ah maybe tomorrow you know those little phrases that we get accustomed to using or saying when others around us are not used to us not drinking but no i'm in recovery i i don't drink anymore um i don't you know but not picking up that was that time this time in 2013 that was an easy part for me easy piece of my recovery because even though it's beautiful and your relationships flourish but now a lot of the real work begins and that's because you're learning to conduct yourself in a way that you may not, never have been accustomed to because now you're feeling now you're dealing with these same emotions that you are suppressing or were uncomfortable with in the past and used to drink or used to suppress them or enhance them now you're doing them sober. Seems like you've done a lot of self-reflection throughout your recovery. Absolutely. Seems like, got, seems like you've gotten to know yourself very well. I was going to say, At, you know, again, towards the end, I was going to say, one of my questions usually is, is there anything you would give as far as advice to people? You know, what you would do as far as based on your experiences, help someone along, you know, kind of get there faster or easier? Well, hopefully that people wouldn't, get to that point i I've, I've met a lot of people in recovery that are you know in their first 30 60 90 days 
and they talk about how difficult it is. And I was fortunate. I, I, I really was in the sense that I wasn't physically addicted. I, I, I mean, I, I, no one ever could explain that one seizure that I had. Who knows what's, where the hell that came from? Because there's no history of it in my, in, in my family that I know of. I mean, when I told my biological father died when I was 15. I don't know what, anything about that family. But um, I didn't have DTs. I didn't have those, those shakes um, when people quit cold turkey and they have to be hospitalized. You know, there's some people, they quit cold turkey, they die, you know. Um, yeah. fortunately I was not one of those people. Um, thank God, you know, um, but I mean, it, it always, it always gets better. It really does. And you can see that, you know, it, it's, it's tough and it's hard, but just don't, don't give up because I mean, it took me the first time back in 2004 and, and I had never gone more than the only time I went more than 48 hours without drinking was because one it's a Sunday in my in my state and they don't I mean liquor stores are closed and you can only buy booze in liquor stores unless you go to a bar um so liquor stores are closed on a Sunday and if there's a holiday on a Monday that pissed me off even more because that's two days I can't go to the liquor store so I'd have to stock up before I'd run out then I'd be going to the gas station and buying a 12 pack and that usually wasn't good enough but anyway um you know, it, it's, it is hard, but not picking up that this time around was relatively easy part because that's where I was in here and that's where I was in here. And I'm pointing to my heart, but it was everything else. It was, it's challenging, but not once did I ever think this is so hard or this is so sad. This is so joyous that I want to celebrate with a drink or I want to drown my sorrows with a drink or pick or go find um, that substance that I used to use. Not once has that ever crossed my mind because that's how determined I am because my life was worth it because I knew I didn't want to be. My sister told me, I would just, I'm working my steps again. And that's what I highly encourage is I know AA isn't for everybody. I know NA isn't for everybody, but oh my God, the, the support and the love and the camaraderie and, and the guidance that you get when you enter those rooms, not a lot of people understand who we are and where we're coming from. Yeah. You know, you just will not get it. And I just went to a meeting on Friday and I just talked with my sponsor again. That's another thing is that's one thing that I failed to do is I failed to work the steps. And even this long, this, this long, this much time into my recovery, here I am nine years, but I felt something was missing in my life. Um, I'll, I'll just say that in my life, not necessarily in my recovery. And then the past six months, I'm thinking again, still, because I was able to get a job as a result of that, that little shitty contact center, call center job that I picked up. My, my skills and my abilities were tapped into again, because I was able to get into a trainer role, which is what I used to do with these young people is what I used to do with those families. I used to mentor and coach in essence, that's what I did. Okay. Um, so I was able to get, uh, apply for and get a training role, which paid me a lot more than when I, in the, the role I was hired for, um, which again, all of those things that I did, cause I did go to college for a period of time and I did get straight A's for a period of time. Um, but I quit going when I met my wife and when I, when she told me she was pregnant again, but not by me, 
we hadn't even been intimate yet. Um, you know, I, I quit going to school. But anyway, um, it led me into a role now where I'm making a salary that I don't have to work a side job. And it's a very comfortable salary. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because, uh, yeah, I lost my track. I lost my train of thought. But um, going back to the rooms and going back into recovery is is the people in AA. Um, oh, it was, oh, I'm sorry. It was something that was missing. I have a great job. My 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 relationships are flourishing. Um, but I felt there was something missing. And then I'm like, you know what, Rick? And, and I've always wanted to do this. And I'm like, you never worked the steps. You never got a sponsor. And I also, all those times how I want to help people. And that's something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. And I miss working with, with young people. But I also just work miss working with people where I'm doing something for somebody else besides myself. Whether that's just listening, whether it's sharing, whether it's sharing my experiences. Um, guidance in any way shape or form and then we know in the recovery program of AA that you can't you can't walk anyone through the steps unless you've done the steps yourself and remember I only went through step four and that was in 2004 in my first treatment program and so many a meeting I wanted to reach out and ask for someone to be my sponsor in which and here I am not almost well eight years in in recovery and finally, finally, back in October, November, um, when they asked that at the end of the meetings, is there anybody willing to sponsor or reach out? The hands went up and I just looked across the room and I focused this, my eyes on this gentleman. And I went over and I introduced myself. Finally, I worked up the courage to do it. And why I didn't do it sooner, I don't know, because the the reward that I'm getting from working the steps and, and talking through some of these other issues with somebody is something that I have not gotten in recovery yet. Um, you know, your relationships come back. I was able to, you know, I'm not involved with the core system anymore. I've got a great job and my job affects thousands and thousands of people. Um, we're, we're overhauling our state's Medicaid system to make it more affordable and easier to use. And I'm on the training aspect. I am, I'm, I'm an instructional designer slash trainer. Um, and now I'm in a lead role for this company that's got this government contract and I'm helping people that way. So that's, that feels good. But again, something was missing, right? So, um, reaching out and getting a sponsor, we reworked the steps and now here I am on step nine. And I'm making amends and I'm making amends in step nine with people that I've harmed. And uh, it's, it's, it's a fa fabulous feeling and it's difficult to relive a lot of the stuff that we've done, but um, it's, it's, it's a wonderful feeling. And I recommend that anyone, if you're, if you're not in a recovery program, please find something and find something that works for you. And not everybody's successful the first time around. Um, yeah, my story is just one story of many that you will hear that, you know, it, it doesn't always work the first time. Are there people out there that have quit drinking and stayed sober after their first attempt? Yeah, there are, but there, it's rare in my experience. It's rare. Um, many have to, you know, you've got, what's the, what's the, 
I know I have another relapse in me, but do I have another another recovery in me? And it's I, a great I, one. Yeah, it's, it's a great a, one. It's a great one because I don't I don't see myself mm -hmm. to have serious talking. Uh, <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> um, I I don't I don't see myself to have another recovery. Um, and I have just come too far. And that thing that was missing, I've definitely found by finding a sponsor and working the steps. Um, because now I'm I'm tapping into emotions that were necessary for me to to revisit. Um, I'm speaking now to the people that I've harmed, and I'm fortunate enough to have grown enough in my recovery that I've expressed my gratitude. I have made amends in an informal way over the course of the past nine years, but now I'm doing it in a way to where I can break it down more in behavior, more in action, more in thoughts and feelings than I've ever, I've ever felt possible. And I highly encourage anyone to, yes, please get, seek that help. Don't give up. Um, I'm hoping my story again, this, you know, there's, I, I haven't shared like this before and I love to share only because I'm not ashamed. You know, I've done some fucked up things. I've, I've, I've hurt a lot of people. I've, I've you know, um, and not just by be, letting people down. And some of my crimes were assault. Some of my crimes were theft. Um, that's not me. That's not who I am. Um, but that's what alcohol and drugs, that's the position to put me into. Who does a fucking beer run at 35 years old? I mean, that's shit that teenagers do, you know? <laughs> but there I was. I was broken. I wasn't done drinking. And I felt it was a good time to run in that grocery store and and make a, make a way with a couple cases. And I was successful. And then I tried it again and got caught. Um, that's embarrassing, man. You know, I was I was a mentor to our, 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 our younger population at one point in time. And here I am doing that. But I'm very, I'm very proud of where I am today. I'm very proud that I'm working the steps, um, giving back, uh, you know, volunteering time, unit service as part of your recovery. It feels good to give back in, in ways, whether it's volunteering time, volunteering money. Um, I felt this was a great opportunity for me. I saw this and because I follow these social media, it's not, I, there's more than one organization I follow, but this one is probably one of the more popular and the, and the podcasts um, are becoming more um, common and more impactful, honestly. And uh, I'd love to be a part of it again in any way that I can um, with no format, with no structure of how this was going to go and me just talking. I, I have rambled. I've repeated myself, I'm sure, but there's, you know, there's other things I'm sure I've left out. But uh, I was great. No, you were very great. You're very on point. You're very good speaker. It's like, it's like, yeah, it's like you, you would think that you, you think that you're like a, a author on, on what do you call on tour, you know, where you're telling your story over and over and over again. I'm very well spoken. Well, I appreciate that. And, um, you know, it's, it's recovery has, has brought me, I, I, I'm living a beautiful life. Is it easy? No, it's not easy. Um, but it never really is but it's easier and it's easier because I'm sober. Um, I, I, the rewards that, that I have today is, is living this life. I mean, think of all the financial trouble you get yourself in. Think of all the damage that you've done as in your, to your relationships. Think of all the things that you've done that got you in trouble with the law. Um, mending that shit and putting that stuff back together. It takes time. 
And I think that's where a lot of people get discouraged is it doesn't happen fast enough, you know? Um, but w- one of the worst experiences I had in my, in my recovery and one of the lowest points in my recovery is, as I told you, I had earned my way into this, this role as a trainer. Well, with my experience, with my bullshitting or my gift to gab, I guess, I was able to get an opportunity to interview with, with a job like uh, Morgan Stanley um, as a trainer. And they offered me the job. And this salary was exceedingly higher than the salary that I was making. And I was, it was a life-changing event, right? And I knew I could pass a drug and alcohol, or, or I knew I could pass a drug test. Here comes their background check. So their background check comes through and they told me um, that they had found multiple charges on my background or on my, my criminal record. I knew that was coming. My pitch to them was that I am now, every single charge that you saw, every single criminal entry that you saw, all was between this year and this year. I was, an act, I was actively drinking and using at that time. I am now sober and I am now sober this many years. This was in 2017. I have been sober f- for four years at that point. Um, then they asked me, uh, to give them a more in detailed report. So what I had to do, I had to go around to every courthouse of every jurisdiction, meaning every city that I had offended in and get court reports, which are public record. Okay. So anybody can get them. So I had to go around and get court reports and submit them to this company's vendor that does the background checks but so here i am getting this job i'm riding a high this is a game changer because also in my recovery my youngest daughter wanted to come and live with her dad and i knew getting my apartment for the first time living on my own in many many years um i got a two-bedroom got a two-bedroom intentionally because i wanted my daughter to come and live with me well that happened she came and she lived with me I mean, I gave her a stable and safe environment from what she had to go through living with her alcoholic mother and alcoholic stepfather. Um, Because, yeah, these circles are all intertwined in one way or another. Um, So I get this job opportunity. I get this offer contingent about successful completion of this background check. They find all my bullshit. I had to go around to all the courts, submit them copies of the court reports. But here's the kicker is they wanted copies of the police reports. And what does that mean? That means that's that's the officer's rendition of what took place that day, that night that I made, committed that offense. It also is their rendition or their report of the witness and that what they recall from the events that took place. It also is those incidences where I was picked up using, I was out in the community where I would pass out the officer that picked me up. Um, their description of those events, of how I looked, how I sounded, how I appeared, everything. So here I am four years sober. The court reports, no problem. I knew that they were there. I, I see my offenses. It's on paper. But it's when I had to go pick up those police reports. Because now I get another person's view and opinion on what took place, what they saw, what they heard, 
what they witnessed, who they interviewed, the people that were interviewed, those witness reports. And that's the lowest that I had felt. And I can't tell you how long. My self-esteem went from up here to, I'm going to take it off camera. It just went down there because it reminded me of how low I was and how out of control I was and the things that I did to others, the things that I did to myself, the kind of person I was, but I didn't pick up. And I just reminded myself that that's not me. That is not who I am. And that's not who I am sober. And that's not me anymore. This is who I am today. So I started the path. Fortunately, I have a cousin who is an attorney. The same cousin. So the cousin that's sober on the West Coast, that's his sister. His sister is an attorney. She thinks, she thought it was fantastic that she finally saw her cousin get sober. And she saw me at my worst as well. Um, Because their house always hosted family parties. And they always had a lot of alcohol. And they'd always catch me sneaking in the back. Drinking off the bottles in the back, not off, not out of glasses like everybody else. So when she knew I was sober and she knew the situation I was facing, she offered her services free of charge to help me expunge my record. Um, so, so now, um, here I am, many many years later, and this is the fucked up thing is because I had so many misdemeanors and so many infractions that our bureau, the Bureau of Criminal Investigation, would only expunge X amount of charges. So what we then went in is we had all the other charges reduced to infractions. So now I have no misdemeanors showing on my record, but I have a shitload of infractions. But infractions could be a parking ticket, a speeding ticket, or jaywalking, or not you know, paying this fine, but it's not showing up as a criminal offense or, or anything else. Um, but then they wouldn't. I had so many infractions that they, they said they couldn't expunge the, the, the remainder that I have. However, um, I'm very grateful for what I was able to I have. Say, you're, still in a, you're still in a good position. I am. And this job was <laughs> a wonderful opportunity, too, because they, too, found those, those offenses. Because I hadn't had it expunged yet. And I've been with this company for three years. Um, and HR, HR contacted me directly. The vice president of HR said, we want to offer you the job, but we have a concern with what we found on your background. Do you have some time to talk? I said, Absolutely called her up directly she asked me can you tell me a little bit more about what we found when we conducted our background check i said yes absolutely i am not going to be dishonest in any way shape or form i'm in recovery first words that's fantastic congratulations because i had been in recovery this was three years ago i got this job six years i said i'm in six years in recovery her words were fantastic that is amazing um, and I, I told her the same thing I told Morgan Stanley. Um, I, everything that you saw, everything that you see is a direct result of me drinking or being under the influence of something, but I'm six years sober. So brief conversation. She said, well, we here at my company's name believe in second chances. Welcome to the team. And here I am three years go. later. Um, promoted twice already in three years and nine years sober it works man it can happen and I, I just want to just if anything I can say is reach out you're not alone never give up and you got to you can only do it for yourself 
because you're the one that you have to wake up to in the morning and you're the one that matters when you go to sleep at night. Everything else will fall into place, but you need to do it for yourself first. Well, my friend, thank you so much for everything because you, I, I literally haven't spoken much at all today, but that means is I didn't have to guide it in any way, shape, or form. You were, you guided the boat perfectly down this conversation, got right down, well, the, uh, right down the grass, uh, grass tacks and then some. Well, I appreciate it. And if there is ever another opportunity on another topic related to recovery, I would love to participate again. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking about doing some two different types of formats where maybe we talk about like a, a topic discussion with some just people, things like that. Because I did a topic discussion, which was a roundtable, which was with um, people who actually work in the field. But maybe we can do some with some just regular good old fashioned addicts, some roundtables. But we'll see. But for everyone else that's listening, if you could go below, subscribe. Also, give us a like. Go to our YouTube uh, channel and um, check out all the different videos we have. It's going back about 15 episodes now. You can go to our Facebook group and page. Give us a like there. Under the Facebook group, the events tab, you'll see all of our Zoom meetings because we do Zoom meetings daily. Um, And that's all I got for today. So until next time, folks.